This is Gene Delcourt and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed a lawsuit alleging that the Wisconsin Department of Veteran Affairs has discriminated against women when it offers starting salaries. The lawsuit comes after Wisconsin Emergency Management, a division of the Department of Veteran Affairs, offered a position to a woman at lower than the advertised starting salary. When she declined, they offered the position to a man, with a starting salary of about $8,000 more than what they had offered the woman, according to the Associated Press. Southern Wisconsin's weekend of snow has led to a series of traffic snafus. On Interstate 90, a massive pileup near Beloit shut down the interstate for hours on Friday. At least 27 people were injured in the crash, according to the Associated Press. In the city of Madison, at least 30 crashes required police response on Saturday, with five that had injuries, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. In snowy conditions like over the weekend, drivers should allow at least 200 feet between them and the car ahead of them, to allow for slower and less responsive brakes. New federal court data indicates that the rate of farm bankruptcies in Wisconsin decreased drastically between 2020 and 2022, bringing Wisconsin's rate more in line with other states. Last year, Wisconsin had only 10 farms file for bankruptcy, down from the 72 that filed in 2020, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. That steep decline comes in part because debt collection and foreclosures were delayed by the Department of Agriculture during the COVID pandemic. However, despite the fact that those initiatives have expired, farmer bankruptcy has not picked back up. Part of that may be because prices for food have increased across the nation, making farms more profitable. It also may be that farm consolidation has left Wisconsin with fewer small-scale farms that are more vulnerable to bankruptcy than before. Protesters gathered in front of Madison City Hall on Sunday calling for an end to police brutality. The rally comes after police in Memphis, Tennessee released a body cam camera footage of the killing of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers, according to NBC 15. Protesters emphasize the need to mourn the deaths and celebrate the lives of people killed by police violence while still agitating for change. The protest was organized by the Party for Socialism and Liberation. The Sequoia branch of the Madison Public Library is hosting a forum tonight for Madison's mayoral candidates in the spring election. The forum will run from 7 to 8.30 tonight and will cover such topics as the candidates' stances on bus rapid transit, housing, and homelessness. The three candidates who have announced for the mayoral race so far are Satya Rhodes-Conway, Gloria Reyes, and Scott Kerr. The event will be moderated by the president of the Midvale Heights Community Organization, and Madison residents are invited to attend in person or via Zoom. The city of Madison has announced that the snow emergency will remain in effect for tonight. That means that city residents will have to park their cars on the odd number side of the road overnight to make way for snow removal vehicles. Vehicles that are incorrectly parked may be towed and face a $60 ticket. Parking is also available in city-owned parking ramps in downtown Madison in the cashiered section, not the metered section. There is no charge if you park between the hours of 9 p.m. and 7 a.m., although charges will begin to accrue if you leave your vehicle there past 7 a.m. And now on to today's top stories. For decades, the bust of fighting Bob LaFollette has sat in the east wing of the Capitol Rotunda alone, with no mention of his significance to Wisconsin history. That changed today when his great-grandson and Secretary of State finally completed his two-year-long mission to unveil a plaque dedicated to the Wisconsin Progressive. 
WORT producer Nate Weggehout went to the unveiling ceremony earlier today. Thank you, my blue The Raging Grannies of Madison joined Wisconsin Secretary of State Doug LaFollette and dozens of onlookers in the state capitol today to unveil a new plaque dedicated to LaFollette's great-grandfather, Fighting Bob LaFollette. Robert M. LaFollette was born in Primrose, Wisconsin in 1855 and was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, U.S. Senate, and Governor of Wisconsin at the turn of the 20th century. A staunch progressive, Fighting Bob ran for president as a third-party candidate twice, once in 1912 and again in 1924, where he won over 16 percent of the popular vote. Fighting Bob died while serving as a U.S. senator in 1925. Now, almost 100 years after his death, Fighting Bob is commemorated with not only a bust, but a plaque outlining his achievements and his fight for progressive politics. Doug LaFollette, who has served as Secretary of State since 1982, first got the idea to install a plaque on the bust of Fighting Bob during the pandemic. After two years of back and forth with the committee overseeing the Capitol building, that plaque is now in place. Getting the plaque in the Capitol was not an easy task, LaFollette says. When he first brought the idea to the committee, it was outright denied, and they instead called for a simple nameplate to be installed on the bust instead. I sort of said, okay, I, I'm going to give up for now. I'll leave it in your hands to work on it. So they, they fussed around with it, and they came back, and then I took what they were thinking about, and I came up with an, another version, kind of a compromise because I wanted to have more information about Fighting Bob. And some people just said, well, his name is enough. Or maybe put his birthday. Or, so I said, no, but we finally, finally came up with an agreement. The committee agreed to the compromise on one condition. They weren't going to pay for it. Instead, LaFollette says that he was called on to come up with the $2,700 needed to install the plaque himself. LaFollette was able to raise about half of that money through a fundraising campaign in which 12 people contributed around $1,300. At the unveiling today, the campaign received one last donation of $500 from the Raging Grannies themselves. LaFollette personally paid for the remaining cost to install the plaque. Along with a list of his accomplishments, the plaque reads, Fighting Bob LaFollette, a founder of the progressive movement, champion of the Wisconsin idea, quote, the basic principle of this government is the will of the people. In addition to his work in politics, Fighting Bob also founded a magazine called the LaFollette Weekly in 1909. It's better known today as The Progressive. Norman Stockwell is the current publisher of the Progressive magazine. He spoke at today's unveiling, saying that many of the issues Fighting Bob fought for at the turn of the 20th century are still being fought today. As Bob said when he was elected overwhelmingly to the U.S. Senate for a second term in 1911, tyranny and oppression are just as possible under democratic forms as any other. We are slow to realize that democracy is a life and involves continual struggle. It is only as those of every generation who love democracy resist with all their might the encroachment of its enemies that the ideals of representative government can even nearly be approximated. Doug LaFollette says that he agrees, calling his great-grandfather his biggest political hero in both state and federal politics. 
the biggest thought I have is, where is this man when we need him now? Oh, well, if he were in the U.S. Senate representing us right now, a dream. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Help. Although they go largely unrecognized and face barriers, Midwestern LGBTQ farmers persist as they reframe the image of the family farm. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin New Connection has more. In the Midwest, LGBTQ farmers are challenging long-standing stereotypes in agriculture. They're creating safe spaces in an industry that has often excluded them, but they still face barriers, ranging from land inaccessibility to federal lending restrictions to social isolation. There's no official count of LGBTQ farmers, as it is not yet part of the Census of Agriculture. The federal government has considered adding it to future surveys and begun outreach to LGBTQ producers, but pushback from outside the community still lurks. In the meantime, farmers like Shannon Mingalone are forging ahead. She and her partner run a farm near the Illinois-Wisconsin border, and like some other LGBTQ producers, they proudly weave in their mission along with their sexual orientation and gender identities. We want to build an ecosystem that works for our planet and then also makes a space for people who maybe don't see themselves represented in farming. For example, she says they try to be visibly queer at places like farmers markets. But not all LGBTQ farmers operate the same way, with some pursuing conventional agriculture. No matter the business model, rural sociologists say negative attitudes toward LGBTQ people or unawareness of their challenges makes common obstacles like land access an even bigger roadblock for these farmers. Katie Densman of Iowa State University estimates that same-sex married couples oversee about 1% of all dually-run farms nationwide. She agrees that failing to formally recognize these producers will further stall improvement to services. If you're completely unaware that these people are out there, then their issues are completely being ignored. And in a way, that is perpetuating violence in a system. And until the federal government responds to such challenges, Mingalone says farmers like her will have to stay focused on being resourceful in other ways to survive. The USDA has its purpose, but grassroots organizations and smaller organizations, co-op organizations that are finding different ways to get funding to people, I have found to be more helpful to me personally. The USDA says it is trying to be responsive in certain ways. Last summer, it held the first ever LGBTQ Farmer Roundtable to learn how producers access department programs. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This story was produced with original reporting from Bennett Goldstein at Wisconsin Watch. We continue our coverage of the 2023 spring primary election tonight by heading to District 12 on the northeast side of Madison. Home to the Dane County Regional Airport and the future site of the Madison Public Market, this February there will be five candidates on the ballot looking to make it to the general election to serve the district. One of those candidates is Victor Toniolo, who joined WORT producer Nate Wagehope last week to talk about why he's running for District 12 Alder. 
The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an older seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 12 on the east side of Madison, containing the Dane County Airport down to the Yahara River at Burr Jones Park off of East Johnson. That district was represented by Syed Abbas until he stepped down last year. As the recently appointed interim older Barbara Vetter has announced that she will not be running to keep the seat past April, that means five new candidates will be on the ballot on February 21st. One of those candidates is Victor Toniolo, who joins me now by phone. Uh, Victor, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's my pleasure, Nate. So, Victor, tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Uh, my name is Victor Toniolo. I've lived in Madison for 19 years. I've worked in the biotech sector for 15 years since I graduated from UW. Uh, I've also been involved in real estate for the past seven years, and I have held a service industry job on and off for 11 years. And why are you running for Alder? I'm running for Alder first and foremost so I can be a responsive uh, source for my constituents. Um, I think it's really important that Alders are there for their constituents, and I've heard a lot of complaints from people in Madison that they're not always there. Um, I also want to serve on the board because I have a lot of opinions on things that I assume you're going to ask me about. I certainly will, and we'll get to those in a little bit. But sticking with you for a little while, have you ever previously held any elected office? I have not, no. And so, Victor, what do you do in your spare time? Oh, I do a lot of things in my spare time. I definitely enjoy bowling. Um, I do bowling for colons every year. That's something I want to get the word out with this platform. I also foster animals for the Dane County Humane Society. I am without them right now because I just uh, took a kitty back. And I'm a huge film buff. Uh, we got the Wisconsin Film Festival coming up. I've been a volunteer with them for about 15 years, and I try to see as many films as I can here in the end of winter, early spring, while the weather keeps me indoors. And what kind of movies do you like? I personally like documentary films, especially with the film festival. That represents about half of them. But I like all kinds of films, comedies, uh, action adventure. I guess I don't get too much into the heavily dramatic, uh, unless, of course, it's very critically acclaimed. I'll, I'll see anything that you know has a really good Metacritic score or IMDb above eight or so. Well, Victor, let's turn our eye over to the city now. Uh, what are a few pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address? For Madison as a whole, uh, housing is my biggest issue by far. I would like to see increased development. I really just kind of want to be a part of some of the changes that are already happening. Mayor Satya has her Housing Forward initiative. The council is starting to realize that we are in a housing crisis and are making changes to try to alleviate that. But um, my real estate experience tells me we're not doing enough and we really need to get rents under control and uh, make home ownership accessible to many people who are forced out of Madison. And now I want to dive a little bit more into housing in just a little bit. But uh, looking at your specific district, what are a few key issues facing your specific district, District 12 there? What have you heard from potential constituents? So District 12, I think, has the most exciting issues in Madison. Um, the public market is long awaited. It needs to happen soon. We can't afford any more delays, especially because construction costs are going up. And we really need this business incubator in the city and in District 12. And I'm very happy um, that they've finally allocated some funding for it. But we really need a concerted effort. And we got to raise the political will to push this across the finish line, because I think the public market project is huge. 
Um, in talking to constituents, the other big item is transportation. And I really feel that the Oscar Mayer site is the best site for a potential Amtrak station because it represents an opportunity for a true intermodal transportation hub where we would have the potential for future light rail. We'd have a bus depot, uh, including intercity buses. And of course, its proximity to the airport makes it a very easy transfer. So Oscar Mayer, for me, represents the best opportunity we have uh, for a true intermodal hub. And that's why I would be pushing hard for the Amtrak station to go there. And now let's take a look at a few key issues facing Madison, starting off with transit there. Now bus rapid transit uh, is set to take into effect pretty soon here. So how do you how do you feel about bus rapid transit? I think that a lot of compromises were made with bus rapid transit, but it is the best we can do for now with our city budget. Um, I would hope to add a north-south route, for instance, uh, in the future, especially, you know, considering what I just mentioned with the uh, intermodal station located somewhere on the north side, northeast side of Madison. I'm excited for bus rapid transit because I believe it will provide better service for everyone. And uh, in in conjunction with the uh, updated metro routes should see a lot better public transport in Madison in general. Now, another issue that you brought up there was housing. So what sort of key initiatives would you like to see to bring more uh, housing here to Madison? Um, There are many. Um, I'm very happy with the Transit-Oriented Development Overlay District. The ODOD gets me every time because it will allow for higher density along these public transport routes. Um, I would probably push for more upzoning of one of the alders in the transit-oriented development overlay district meeting uh, was kind of saying in jest how we should just upzone the whole city. But, you know, that is what a lot of people want uh, in terms of getting the density that we actually need. In addition to changing zoning for private development to function, I am pro uh, public housing. Um, I'm happy that the city is adding public housing there in the triangle, not in my district, but it's, it's good to have in the city. And I would push for more public-private partnerships. I was very inspired by some recent developments where the city worked with a developer to give them some real estate, usually in the form of an old parking garage, and then get both a new parking garage and additional housing on top of that. I believe the city has many opportunities to pursue public-private partnerships to develop more city-run housing units. And now the final issue that I want to take a look at is more handled at the county level, but certainly has pretty big implications, especially for District 12 there, and that is the F-35 fighter jets, which are set to be landing in Madison uh, later this spring. How do you feel about the F-35 jets? Well, in general, I feel that they're a massive waste of money and resources. In general, I have exhausted my efforts of trying to fight them, though, unfortunately. Um, This is a county and a federal, really, decision that has been made. So my focus has shifted towards doing the best we can to alleviate their impacts. Two points that I would like to very quickly focus on is I'd like to pursue federal funding for soundproofing. The FAA has uh, issued grants in multiple other cities, uh, sometimes very large. If you look around Midway in Chicago, they gave $5 million for just for soundproofing. So I would pursue that aggressively to get soundproofing for current residents and for any future developments. And then the firefighting foam needs to go. Um, I am a biochemist by trade. PFAS don't belong anywhere in medicine. So in addition to cleaning up the wells, uh, we need to get that firefighting foam replaced with something that doesn't contaminate the environment.
Now, Victor, sometimes issues get complicated at the city council. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see some policy happen and other constituents who want to see the exact opposite happen. How would you handle that sort of situation? Well, I think that situation is very easy. If I have 50-50 split in my constituents, I would make the decision that I felt was better for the city because it is the alder's job to balance both their constituents' concerns and the needs of the city as a whole. Just a real quick example, if I get 100 emails that say don't build a development and 100 emails that say build a development, I'm going to vote in favor of the development. Now, Victor, just sort of wrapping up here, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Uh, Yes, I do, actually. This has come up a few times. I am not taking any campaign donations. I will accept in-kind donations if uh, it seems like a good fit, for instance, from local artists. I'm actually looking right now. And in addition to that, uh, I don't believe the alders should make more money. I don't think they should make less money, but I believe that being an alder is a public service. And as such, I will be donating at least part of my salary, a minimum of $1,000, to a nonprofit in Madison chosen by my constituents, which obviously I will put that word out if I'm elected. I've been talking with Victor Toniolo, one of the five candidates running in the spring primary election to become District 12's new alder. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Victor, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for giving me the platform. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Gene Delcourt. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout's uh, host, Brenda Kunkel, sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, the county discusses how one food supplier's closure is affecting senior centers, and the city takes a look at the new home of the Madison Public Market. It's your favorite part of the week. It's Monday, and we're talking to Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening in local government. We'll start with Dane County, and Tuesday, that'd be tomorrow, at 5.30, we have a a virtual event of the Community Justice Council. So um, looks like a few subcommittees maybe are are having a joint meeting. What's this about? Yep, they're going to be getting a presentation from the National Initiative Advancing Pretrial Policy and Research. Hmm. And they will be talking about, you know, sort of the net, what's going on nationally, as well as effective policies and practices. And they will allow the public to ask questions. So if you do have some questions, there's an email where you can submit some questions in advance. Um, and they will try to get to as many questions as possible at the end of the event. All right. What are you doing over there? It sounds like you're stapling. Is my cat oh. right across my desk? Oh, okay. Hi, little kitty. That's that's a fine excuse. We don't we don't care yes, about that, that. That was China, but um, some flowers wanting to get in on the action. Well, sound like Grateful Dead songs. They <laughs> China cat sunflower. <laughs> All right. Yeah. A long, strange trip it's been, hasn't it? Oh, definitely. <laughs> All right. Eleven thirty. The area. This is Wednesday now. The area. Agency on Aging, its Nutrition and Wellness Committee, is meeting virtually. We don't talk all that much about this committee, so I'd like to hear more about it. Actually, yeah, so 
this, uh, if anybody's seen the news about Little John's and how, what an impact that has had all over um, the city um, with them pulling out of providing food from various groups that count on it. Um, yeah. They have that on their agenda. Um, also, they're looking at the, um, <laughs> they're looking at the um, site reviews of various places where they have uh, meals for people who are elderly. And that's at Ziggy's meal site. Oregon Senior Center and the Stoughton Senior Center, as well as a high beam meal site. Um, and so those um, meal sites are all under review and then they'll be talking about how they're gonna handle the current crisis of getting food to people in need. 5.30 on Wednesday, we have the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County. So that's a, a joint committee and there it's being held virtually. Now, we talked a lot about this during the pandemic, a little less since then. They do have a couple of county resolutions um, changing some reallocations of some positions at public health. And then they have um, some additional grant funding that they'll be talking about. And then the two things that are kind of interesting, there's a letter from the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County to the town of Middleton. Can't oh. tell what it's about, but they're they're going to send a letter. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, and then they are also going to be doing a position statement on gun violence. Oh, in the town of Middleton. Um, maybe it'll be strongly worded. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Something's going on in the town of Middleton. Let's let's jump down to Thursday at 7 p.m. We have a meeting of the county board, all 37 supervisors, and it is a hybrid meeting. It is. It's a relatively short meeting with a lot of routine items. But in the beginning of the meeting, they will be getting a high-speed rail presentation. Mm. Um, so that may be of interest to some folks. All this talk of transit is getting everybody excited. So um, we'll see what's what, what the county board might hear on Thursday night. Indeed. All right. Well, let's move on to the city of Madison. We have um, at 4 p.m. We have a facilities programs and fee subcommittee. I believe this is a, a subcommittee of the Parks Commission, right? Uh, yeah. and they're, they're meeting in the Goodman Maintenance Facility. What, what's on their agenda? Again, a bunch of things that are maybe of interest to folks. Um, they are looking at the public amplification policy for in the parks. Oh. They're also looking at uh, the food trucks that they had in the carts. Uh, they had carts in the parks 2.0, and now they're going to be doing carts in the parks 3.0 with some changes. Okay. So that may be of interest to some folks. And then they have a couple of events. Um, one, the Madison Symphony Orchestra at Penn Park, as well as the Monona Grove School District at the Monona Grove Cross for the Monona Grove Cross Country Invitational at Monona Golf Course. Um, so those are events that they're looking to do every year and, and approve that so that they don't have to keep coming back for approvals. Oh, that's a nice use for a golf course. People just run on it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Anything but golf. That's that's my take. Uh, Four thirty today. It's already in progress. The Finance Committee. Uh, they have sixteen recommendations to to act upon. What else? Yeah, so those are all personnel committee recommendations, lots of reclassifications and, and putting people into different types of positions. Uh, um, and then they will be looking at um, the city council had asked them to make a recommendation about, sorry, the cat just moved my cursor. That's okay. <laughs> In China, you're causing a lot of problems today. Oh, cats are going crazy. All right, um, about furloughs. So the, they're doing a, um, they're looking at the furlough policy um, that oh. the city council had had requested. And okay. then um, there's a bunch of sole source contracts, which means they're not putting it out for bid, but they're just going with the ones that they had already um, chosen uh, for one reason or another. Um, and then there's a couple of grants that they'll be doing. And that's about it. It's kind of, an, again, a little bit of a boring week for the finance committee. And on Wednesday, this is a, uh, a little odd. We have the Common Council Executive Committee and they're, they're meeting without the 
There's no city council meeting this week, it looks like. Um, so just the executive committee. So they'll be looking at the social media pilot that they did, and then they will be looking at the boards, committees, and commission structure. Um, anybody who was involved in the TFOG stuff several years ago um, knows that every year they try to look at how to change boards, committees, and commissions. And it seems like every year they do not do anything new. <laughs> so um, I don't know if they're going to actually make any headway this time. And then they'll just be getting a bunch of updates from the Common Council office. All right. Good to know. And then another uh, important committee that is meeting on Thursday at 530 with the Community Development Block Grant Committee. Now, for a lot of nonprofits in the city, that's this is very important um, committee, right? Yes, it definitely is. Um, and they'll be looking at how they um, use the American Rescue Plan fund, funds for the uh, home projects. Hmm. And so they'll be having a public hearing on that. They'll also be looking at um, some additional funds um, for homeless programs, which they are going to be moving around. There was usually when there's a little bit of money left over at the end of the year, they got to do some adjustments. So that's what that mm -hmm. is. And then they're authorizing $400,000 for Centro Spano uh, to get a loan for a facilities loan program. Good things to be updated on. Um, and then we have a possible notice on, I think this is, no, this is Thursday, a possible notice of a quorum of the Public Market Development Committee. Pretty important. This uh, kind of got saved in the budget process this last time around, didn't it? Yep. And they'll be they'll be uh, actually on site and they'll Ooh. be taking a tour of the site uh, talking about, you know, <laughs> how does it go from a, a homeless men's shelter to a public market? So they'll be taking a look at, uh, you know, actually visiting the site and, and looking around and seeing what's what's needs to be done. And is that open to the public? I assume um, it so, is open right? to the public. It's a public mm. meeting. All right. Well, hey, you can show up. It's on uh, the 200 north uh first street you know right in the corner on johnson and first street so check it out if you're interested and uh brenda thank you for putting together um a list of means which you can check out at forwardlookout.com uh, if you want to know about what's happening this week in local government thank you All right thanks dylan and uh china and sunflower say goodbye <laughs> perfect right on cue <laughs> Yesterday was the anniversary of the birth of one of America's greatest pamphleteers, Thomas Paine. His common sense changed the term of debate in the early days of the American Revolutionary War. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Yesterday, January 29th, is the anniversary of the birth of Thomas Paine in 1737 in England. Paine wrote the insurgent pamphlet Common Sense at the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. Thomas Paine was influenced by his father, Joseph Paine, a Quaker and a skilled corset maker. Thomas also apprenticed to his father, later moving to London. He spent hours in bookstores and attending talks on scientific subjects. Paine initially claimed little interest in politics, but must have been influenced by the contradictions between rich and poor. He was aware of rising resentments of the poor and working classes amid state violence. He knew about the Republican-inspired real Whigs and liberal philosophers such as John Locke. He learned about the latest thinking in logic and communication, the theory of rhetoric that influenced his plain-spoken writing style. 
1774, Thomas Paine lost his grocery and tobacco business, also his job as a tax collector, and his marriage fell apart. Paine had met Ben Franklin and was easily persuaded by Franklin to move to America. Paine barely survived the journey as deadly typhoid fever swept the ship. Paine was carried ashore on a stretcher in Philadelphia and spent several weeks recuperating. Most of his fellow passengers were indentured, but Paine was free. Paine again found himself in bookstores, and one bookstore owner, Robert Aitken, asked to see his writing samples, and later hired Paine to edit a new publication called The Pennsylvania Magazine. Paine was excited by the First Continental Congress, now in session in his new city. Paine also witnessed a mechanics revolution, that is, a group of skilled tradesmen, militantly organized to support the import ban on British goods and export ban on some American goods. In alliance with the city's radicals, they ran their own slate of political candidates and successfully challenged the ruling merchant class to take over an important city committee. Meanwhile, poor mechanics and laborers enlisted in the Philadelphia militia and formed the Committee of Privates. They demanded both the right to elect their own officers and the right to vote in city elections, regardless of their income. Payne was a successful editor and became a skilled writer. The publication became the best-selling magazine in America, but he ran afoul of the co-founder's ego by editing his pieces and decided to resign. Besides, Payne had resolved to work full-time on a pamphlet supporting the American cause. Payne could see the slave market from the window of his lodgings and was particularly disturbed by the paradox of white indentured servitude and African-American enslavement in the midst of a thriving and liberty-loving people. In March of 1775, he vigorously called for the abolition of slavery. When Franklin returned to Philadelphia and established the first American anti-slavery society, Paine became a founding member. Lexington and Concord made Paine a patriot and a radical. As Paine biographer Harvey K. put it, America had transformed Paine. He would now transform America. Paine wrote to America's working class. Paine built on the trend of narrowly criticizing Parliament and unjust taxation, but he completely recast the debate, for starters directly tying the British king to the British government's criminal and murderous actions. Paine predicted that the American Revolution would initiate a universal transformation. The cause of America is in great measure the cause of all mankind. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. The birthday of a new world is at hand. Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, was first printed on January 10, 1776. The presses could not keep up with the demand. Within a few months, 150,000 copies had been distributed, including a German edition. Portions were reprinted in papers all across the colonies. Paine preached republicanism and independence. In his later writings, Paine supported equal rights for women, especially welfare rights, but also political rights, such as suffrage. In his later years, he again traveled to England, and became involved in the French Revolution, barely escaping execution. Tragically, this man, who had done so much for the nation, had only six attendees at his funeral in New York. The Quakers had not allowed him to be buried in their cemetery because of controversial religious statements he made in his will. Of the six were two freedmen, a Quaker, and a woman with a child in a carriage. The woman was Marguerite, the spouse of a fellow French revolutionary, Payne left his farm to her and her children. And that is our story for today. For the Passes and Paths, I'm Harry Richardson. 
You may have heard the term land-grant universities and wondered exactly what that means. Well, if you are on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus, you are on Ho-Chunk land. In 1832, the U.S. government forced the Ho-Chunk Nation to sign a treaty ceding territory that included the current city of Madison and the University of Wisconsin campus. This history is often overlooked in textbooks, but educators at the UW are looking to correct that with a new curriculum on indigenous land dispossession. On this morning's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Casey Keeler, an assistant professor of civil society and American Indian studies, and a member of the Tulumne Band of Miwok and Citizen Potawatomi, oh, sorry, Potawatomi, about the new program. This is just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org. So tell us uh, about the grant from uh, the NEH. What exactly are you going to be doing with the, the new program? What this project does is it really seeks to think about the complex history and reality, contemporary reality of the University of Wisconsin as a land grant institution. Um, in addition to thinking about the university as a land grant institution and the land the University of Wisconsin benefited from, we also look about at how the larger land grant system, which encompassed the entire United States from coast to coast, also Alaska and the U.S. territory, territories in the Pacific, um, we look at how other areas of Wisconsin were dispossessed and incorporated into Morrill Act land parcels. Now, as we mentioned in the introduction, I mean, people are familiar with the, you know, the University of Wisconsin campus here in Madison, but a large part of what you're talking about are other lands that were elsewhere throughout the state. What were those lands for, and how did the university end up using them, and how were they acquired? Right. So the way that the land-grant system worked was that it used, um, the Morrill Act used what has been called public lands, and I want to use those in scare quotes, which the, the listeners can't see. But what we understand today is public land is really land that was acquired from Indigenous nations by the federal government through processes of treaty making. Um, but there were also unceded lands that fell into these parcels as well. And that generally occurred before the Morrill Act of 1862. So through the treaty-making processes, the federal government was able to acquire a significant amount of land from tribal nations, again, across the country from coast to coast. The Morrill Act, in the midst of the Civil War, right, was a way for the federal government to support um, states who sought to create educational institutions in the forms of colleges and universities. So the Morrill Act granted to each state a specific number of acres of this public land that they in turn could sell to build revenue or to generate front funds to create educational programs in the, in the shape of colleges or universities. Most notably, this land that was given to states to create educational institutions was sold off over a period of years to build endowments. And we know how endowments work and that they're always kind of sitting there, right? They're sitting in an account in perpetuity, really building interest that the universities then live on. And this happened to the tunes of like millions of dollars. 
So tell us um, a little bit more about the curriculum that you're developing. What uh, what kinds of things are you going to be teaching? Who is this going to be available to? And how are you going about putting together th- this history? Right. So several years ago, um, about two years ago, in fact, I joined my colleagues, Caroline Gottschalk-Truski, who's a professor in English, um, Joe Mason, who's a professor in geography, Jen Rose Smith, who's an assistant professor in geography and American Indian studies, and Ruth Goldstein, who's an assistant professor in gender and women's studies. And we really worked on thinking about what is the role and responsibility of us as faculty at a settler colonial institution at the University of Wisconsin, and how can we engage in a conversation about the land-grant history here at the University of Wisconsin, but with our peer institutions, our peer land-grant institutions as well, to actually make change and do something beneficial for the larger community, including students here on campus. But the educational modules that we envision creating are really structured around three thematic areas, one being key concepts. So you could imagine that as like the place to start, right? If you aren't familiar with any of this history, a group of modules that I'm leading and working on in particular is the 1862 moment. So that really forces folks to think about the Morrill Act in conversation with, say, the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railway Act, which all happened within weeks of each other. Um, but also at this time, the, the Civil War is going on. Um, we know that next to us in Minnesota is the U.S.-Dakota War. So I'm taking a look at what everything that's going on politically in 1862 that informs the Morrill Act itself. And then the third module is called the land transfer module, which really looks at the history of these parcels of land across Wisconsin, um, how they came into the federal government's hand through the treaty making processes, the different tribal nations that were involved, and how those parcels of public land have transferred hands since 1862 um, in the land owners today as well. Casey Keeler, Assistant Professor of Civil Society and American Indian Studies, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Every month or so, there's another documentary of aging folk or rock icons. Today's Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson praises Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. You look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of. You either raise your fists or you say hallelujah. That was a clip from the trailer for Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, co-directed by Dana Goldfein and Dan Geller. The title says it all. This is the story of Cohen's life and times through his magnum opus that was six or seven years in the making. Cohen's own story varied. The length and verses also varied, depending on who was doing the singing and interpreting. Larry Sloman, the veteran music journalist who got a star at the Rolling Stone, interviewed Cohen frequently over the years, was only half kidding when he said there were a lot of verses. The number 180 comes to mind. Sloman was one of the many talking heads in this moving documentary. Goldfine recounts the importance of Sloman's stash of cassette tapes. She says, It took a year and a half of bugging Ratso, Sloman's nickname, to look in his closets to see if he could find them. They're really priceless. Some listeners may have first heard the song during the original Shrek movie, 2001, or on one of those TV talent shows. 
The doc has an amusing segment showing the various uses and some would argue misuses of Cohen songs at weddings, funerals, and too many TV shows and movies to mention. One film reviewer, in fact, suggested a moratorium on the song's use in film. For Cohen, it was to quote another song line, not from Cohen, it was a long and winding road through his long, eventful life before this song and his career received its due. After years of working on the song, becoming rather obsessed, it was finally added to Cohen's 1984 album, Various Positions. Tragically, the recording was rejected by Columbia's then-new head, Walter Yetnikoff. Thought Goldfine, because Leonard wasn't one of his guys. Because the record didn't come out in the U.S., there was no supporting tour or radio play, so the world never got to know Varied Positions and thereby hallelujah. It was a big blow to Cohen's career, but luckily the song came out eventually. Dylan started performing it live when he knew Cohen was in the audience, a great tribute to Cohen. Then singer John Cale did his version in 1991 after hearing Cohen perform it live. After Cale, the song was picked up by Jeff Buckley, whose version went into the Shrek movie. After Buckley's untimely death, Rufus Wainwright did the music for the Shrek soundtrack. Best of all in this movie is Cohen's own voice, singing and talking about the creation of his finest song. Cohen once said on the meaning of hallelujah, the world is full of conflicts and full of things that can't be reconciled. But there are moments when we can reconcile and embrace the whole mess. And that's what I mean by hallelujah. He was asked in the documentary where songs came from. He didn't want to explain it and probably couldn't if he tried saying, if I knew where songs came from, I would go there more often. Cohen, after a while, felt the song no longer belonged to him, that whatever people wanted to do with it, to make it their own, was okay with him. In the movie, he said, in response to a question about the time in 2009 when Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley, Hallelujah by Alexandra Burke, and Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen were all in the top 40, a mild sense of revenge entered my heart. Director Geller noted, Cohen was glad the song was out there, and I'm sure he thought it was a nice way to perhaps get people to listen to his other songs. Goldfine noted slightly that they snuck in 22 other Cohen songs into the documentary. Geller noted Hallelujah was a good way to get at Leonard's main contradictions that he wrestled with throughout his life about holiness, brokenness, the longing for connection, and the impossibility of achieving that connection with a lover and with the Creator. The song is ultimately a way into the mind of Leonard Cohen. Brokenness has long been a theme of Cohen's music. He was once asked about a line from his song Anthem's chorus. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. To which Cohen replies, That has been the background of much of my work. All human activity is flawed. It is by the intimacy with the flaw that we discern our real humanity and our real connection with divine inspiration, says a Guardian reviewer. And it is in that final redrafted version of Hallelujah where he ends loveless, maybe godless, cracked and cold and broken. The light truly gets in. Hallelujah, Larry Cohen, A Journey of Story, played briefly in theaters back in July of last year, but just started showing last weekend on Netflix. I highly recommend it. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. Ring the bells, let's ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, Brian Standing with the 8 O'Clock Buzz, and Nicholas Leap for technical production. Oh, Captain, my Captain, Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. Stay up to date with the Wart Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on the radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>